Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary. Here we are, a whole new year. A whole new year of Bible study. We're going to continue on our study. We're calling the Bible study for grown-ups. And this week, the very first one of the year, we're going to look at an event called the Epiphany and why your nativity scene is wrong and why it matters. We'll see you on the other side. So uh, tonight um, is called Your Nativity Scene is Wrong. And uh, before I talk about why it's wrong, let's talk about what the nativity scene is. I think we all know what a cr- the crutch, we know what that is. And, and uh, let me just name off some things that we normally uh, might see in a nativity scene. Almost every one of uh, nativity scenes will have a baby Jesus, right? Then we'll probably have a Mary and Joseph. They'll probably be a character or a figure. Um, Shepherds. Shepherds show up later. That's right. Then probably some cows. Some sort of barn animals. Uh, Maybe an angel. Maybe. What else do we normally see a nativity scene? The wise men. The star. The star and the wise men. And that's why your nativity scene is wrong. Because they don't belong in the nativity scene. Uh, As a matter of fact, a lot of what you think you know about that night and then about also the night with uh, the three from the Orient, and we'll talk about that, uh, is is probably not fully correct. First of all, uh, we always think of we three kings, right? Well, there, there weren't three. Bible doesn't say how many there were. There were three gifts, but doesn't say how many wise men. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about here in a second. There was a lot more people from Persia that showed up in Jerusalem than just three. There were at least three. They weren't kings. And they have no business being in your nativity scene at Christmas because the three kings weren't there. So let's talk, first of all, what the Bible says about the nativity scene. And then we're going to look at the other event where these visitors come to find baby Jesus, or at least uh, toddler Jesus. And we're going to see that those are actually two events that we've often conflated into one account. Another reason why we, I think we've conflated these two is because in just two days, Uh, we will celebrate a religious event called Epiphany. And Epiphany is actually that time when the wise men show up to recognize the baby Jesus. That's what the church celebrates when it celebrates Epiphany. And that event happens 12 days after Christmas. 12 days of Christmas, we get to Epiphany. The other reason, obviously, because it's celebrated at the same time of year, we just kind of conflate the two stories into one story, but they're not. And the reason why this is important is not so I can do a biblical gotcha, you thought you knew this about the Bible, but you didn't really know. It's not the reason. The real reason why I think it's important to know these distinctions because when we put the two together, we actually rob both of the events of the power that they're trying to teach in being included in Scripture. So we kind of cut the story in half unfairly when we put the two together. So tonight, 
I'd like for us uh, briefly to look at the two stories and then focus on the Epiphany story as it's coming up. We celebrate Epiphany Sunday on Sunday, really kind of focusing on what that event is so that we can kind of maybe tease out the symbolism, what the Bible's trying to teach us symbolically about that event. But first, let's look at the Nativity, Luke 2, beginning uh, chapter 2, beginning with 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, right, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. It's the day that Jesus was born. Little bitty baby infant umbilical cord end of his body, Jesus. Right? He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign. To the shepherds, the angel is saying, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord had told us, told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Okay, there's our nativity scene. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. All that had heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her hearts. Then the shepherds leave the nativity scene and they go back to, the, to their flocks. But on their way, Scripture says, they go glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were, they were just told. The nativity scene. Now this story sounds a little bit like the same story. This is the story of the wise men. We find this in the gospel account according to Matthew chapter 2. <coughs> Pardon me. After Jesus was born in Judea. So right there we know these are not the same event because Luke says that the angel says today in Bethlehem Jesus was born. This story says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Not the same thing. During the time of King Herod, we'll talk about this, from the east came to Jerusalem, uh, Magi rather, Magi, we'll talk about all this, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is again the story of the three wise men. Right, But they're not three and they're not kings. They have come to worship Jesus. Now, what does all this mean? Who are the magi? What is, okay, well, first of all, magi or magus is a term for a magician. That's where we get the term magic. It's from these people. Who are these people? These people were Zoroastrian priests, which is a religion that we would find a monotheistic religion that we would find in, uh, in Persia at the time. And they were schooled in things like 
astronomy, and astrology, right? Not only were these wise men in this religion schooled in things like astronomy and astrology, remember that hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, let's put Jesus at zero, right? At zero, we have to remember our Bible history and realize what had happened six and seven hundred years prior. Well, what had happened? The Persian and the Babylon, the Babylonian, then the Persian, the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem and destroy the city. And they take all of the people who work in the government, right, and all of the religious leaders, they take them and they take them back to Babylon and they put them in the royal court so that they, because these were people who were literate. They weren't just shepherds. They weren't just fishermen or simple merchants. But this ruling class of people were administrative specialists. And so to the new empire, they were very, very important. Because they took this group of people from a conquered land in Jerusalem, these Israelites, and they co-opted them into the imperial system and put them to work. Why? Because they were educated. They were also religious. And so, over, the, over this time, they bumped shoulders with other priests and other religious figures that we find in Babylonia and then later in the Persian Empire. And these people, like these Zoroastrian Magi, they had heard the stories of people like Daniel. Remember Daniel from the Old Testament? You guys remember Daniel and Lion's Den and all that bit? Remember Daniel? Where did Daniel live? He was a part of the Babylonian captivity, right? He had the three buddies, Meshach, Shadrach, and Horshach, right? All, that was all a part, Nebuchadnezzar, that was all a part of being a part of this ruling class of people. So they were familiar with their stories. And one of the things that was unique about the Zoroastrians, the Egyptians and the Romans actually shared this really with the Jewish people, is because of the age of the Jewish religion, these conquering people always held the Jewish religion in favor. They were, for the most part, allowed, often, allowed these people to perpetuate uh, their stories and to practice their religions. Not always. The story of, uh, of Daniel and having to do the fasting, that wasn't really a part of, that wasn't a royal decree, ended up being a royal decree, but it was really kind of a, they, they were jealous of Daniel and they were trying to get rid of him. General practice was, as long as you showed some sort of fealty or respect or, um, what do you call it, uh, loyalty to the emperor and do your job, you're pretty much allowed to practice your religion. And the Zoroastrians held the Jewish religion in high regard. And they were familiar with the Old, pardon me, the Old Testament prophecies. And that's going to come up here in just a minute. Because they had become familiar with this God, Yahweh. And they had been greatly influenced by the power of the stories of Yahweh. And these magi, whatever it was that they saw in the sky that they thought was a star, they remembered these old prophecies 
and they obeyed. They actually go 1,200 miles by foot and by camel, right, to obey. So, 1,200 miles later in our story, they all show up. But Like I said before, there's not just three of them. Verse 3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, this is, a one, this is a perfect example of a Bible verse that we could just read and just go right over to the next sentence and not even stop and think about what's being said. When King Herod heard, heard what? Heard of these people, this entourage showing up from Persia, he was disturbed. And it says, not just a few people that saw them come in through the gate, Scripture says all of Jerusalem with him were terrified. Now, I'm, I hope that you're maybe sitting there going, yeah, but I wonder how big was Jerusalem back in the first century. Well, let me tell you, I did some research. <laughs> Jerusalem at the time of Jesus would have been a city of about seventy to 80,000 people. Okay, so there's 8,000 people in Cushing. So Jerusalem this time is 10 times the size of Cushing. Oh, that doesn't really make much sense to me. Uh, it's twice the size of Stillwater during the time of Jesus. That might give us a better, I don't know if that helps or not, right? But if, if everybody in town was upset, is it three guys on a donkey and a camel? Uh-uh. There's tons of people coming with this, with this entourage, so much so that it disturbed the king and terrified the people. Now, also, it's also not going to be a generally a good idea, but they end up doing this. It's not a good idea to go up to the reigning king or queen and say, hey, who's really in charge here, right? Where's the real king? But that's actually what our, our friends from Persia do. When he, he in this phrase, Herod, the king, when he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is this Messiah to be born? <gasps> okay, maybe there's something to this. So Herod brings the guys who got the big thick Bibles, you know, the choke a mule. Get them out here, open them up. What's going on, boys? I know there's something in there about the Messiah. I know that they talk about it. Where, do, where does it happen? And they come up with the answer in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, again, let's unpack this. Whenever the entourage shows up, to King Herod's court, and everybody is freaking out. And they get the preachers together and say, these guys are saying the Messiah is here, and they've, they've walked 1,200 miles following that star. Where is it supposed to lead? Bethlehem. Okay. These people, these, specifically these preachers, these teachers of the law, how long have they been waiting for these stories to come true? 
Hundreds of years. Remember, the guys, Daniel and the guys were telling the Magi about it 600 years before. They've been waiting hundreds of years for this to actually be true. And they're actually referring to a Hebrew prophet that we find in Holy Scripture, a prophet by the name of Micah. And just to read that prophecy, 5 and 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's what it says, you're small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over, over the Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. He'll stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness, this Messiah, will reach to the ends of nowhere. Okay? We believe this prophecy to be true. Put your mind in, in the mind of the priests. And out of nowhere, this menagerie, maybe of hundreds of people that have come 1,200 miles, show up out of nowhere. And without any debate, at least Scripture doesn't record any, there doesn't appear to be any doubt that the Messiah has actually arrived. If any of the priests and the, and, the, and the teachers of the law objected with what the wise men have actually come and told King Herod, Scripture doesn't say, well, some people were for it and some people were against it. And when that happens in Scripture, we actually find Scripture talking about that. Whenever there's disagreement amongst people, the Bible will often uh, discuss what their disagreements were about. In this case, it, does, it seems to be not even up for debate. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, King Herod says, so I too can go and worship him. Don't believe Herod. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, now wait a minute, our nativity scene isn't in a house. Where is it? It's in a manger, right? Might have even been a cave. Not a house. But here, here it's a house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And that's about all Scripture has to say about the Magi, although there are other traditions out there about what ends up happening to these guys. And it's kind of an interesting story. But really, right off the bat here, right, the truth is this is not when Jesus is a baby it takes longer than you think to walk 1,200 miles. This is probably more like when Jesus was about two years old, right? And he's only a couple years uh, old as this believed Messiah. And right away, this is the power that I want to talk about when we don't see it when we put these two stories together. One of the cool things about the Magi story is it shows different ways that people react to the reality of Jesus in the world in different ways. And that's going to be true about Jesus 
to today. People are confronted with the reality of Jesus just as they were in the time of Jesus. And people don't all act in the same way. Right? What's one of the most fascinating stories, things about the story, is that despite all the different circumstances that exist in this time period, in the first century, right? The way humans interact or react to God are still very consistent. Okay? Another thing that I think is super important to tell about this story, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more um, because about distance. And I talked a lot about how the distance, the long distance, right? 1,200 miles. Long distance to go and find the Messiah from Persia to Bethlehem. 1,200 miles to go see if Messiah's here. How far is Jerusalem from Bethlehem? Anyone want to take a guess? Five miles. And if you walked every day, because they didn't have cars in the first century, how far is five miles? That's around the corner, man. We're going to talk about this in a second. Scripture doesn't talk about any of the priests or teachers of the law hopping on with the guys on the camel to go see if it's actually true or not. They've been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this to come true. These guys show up out of nowhere and they can't be bothered to walk the last five miles to encounter Jesus for themselves. First character, though, that I'd like to look at tonight is the king. And we're going to talk more about those priests. Now, Herod uh, was known as Herod the Great. He was a very powerful king, but he was also, uh, his tribe was the Edomites. And what that essentially means is that the earthly king of the Jews here, King Herod, actually isn't a Jew. He's, Edomites uh, come from the clans of anyone? Esau. Edom and Esau, the two names for each other, is, uh, that means red and burly. That's what it means. The clans of Esau are the people that become the Edomites of which Herod is a member. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means he can't be a part of the people of Israel. Why? Because his brother, Esau's brother, Jacob got that blessing, not Esau. And yet, here is someone descended from Esau. This is the king of the Jews. I think this is kind of, that's kind of an interesting thing. So when the Magi show up, uh, the reading tells us that this king was very disturbed. He may have had a guilty conscience and realized, dude, I, I'm not even a Jew. King Herod's afraid and he's faced with the prospect, perhaps, of God demonstrating God's will on the world. And despite Herod as having the great as a last name, Herod does not dispute God's power, and there's a real fear with him. And that can happen to us as well. Herod, Herod knew enough to know that what was going on around him, this is not a fairy tale. Herod knew this was true. Or, if he, or he wouldn't react the way that he does this point in the story and later when he asks for all of the children of Bethlehem to age of Jesus to be killed. He believes this story to be true. Sometimes submitting to God's will brings fear upon ourselves as well. It's interesting about the fear is it's typically 
for me at least, not fear because I believe God will act and he won't. More times than not, when I have the fear of God, it's whenever I want God to act and I know for sure that he will exert his will on my life. And that brings a fear because I know often my personal desires don't often line up with what God desires of me. And that's the same thing we're getting here with Herod. He knows God's acting in the world. He knows he's not the appointed king and he's afraid. Submitting to God, Herod teaches us, just like us can sometimes be scary. Another character that I'd like to look at in response, again, I just talked about them, but the scribes and the priests. Let's look at their part of the story. Let me show you a very common response to God, and that's apathy. Verse 4, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet had written, they said. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, God says, Israel. Not very ambiguous here. Seems pretty clear. As I said earlier, if there was any dispute or disagreements about this prophecy coming true between these teachers and preachers of the law, it doesn't show up in Scripture. It must not have been significant enough to be recorded. My reading of the text seems to indicate that some folks had simply shown up in the, and, and said the Messiah, you know, the one you guys have all been waiting for is here. And we just need to know where he is. And come to find out, the answer is simple. Bethlehem. Now see the apathy or uncaring, uncaring nature of these priests. Again, we have to point out the geography of the situation. In a pedestrian society, it would have been very, very common for people to walk a couple of hours a day. You would have spent your whole life waiting for the coming of the Messiah as a teacher or a preacher of the law, you've spent so much of your life pouring over Holy Scripture. Then one day, the king of the Jews calls you to his room, asks you where the Messiah is to be born, because apparently he has been, and you're not even curious enough to walk the five miles to go check it out for yourself. Songwriter friend of mine, a guy by the name of Scott Evans, once said, the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. If you hate something, or hate someone, you still have some level of emotion to at least care enough to be mad about it. Even if it's emotion of disgust, Apathy is the absence of that emotion. Put simply, the teachers and the priests have been expecting, they had been praying, they had been pleading with God to send a deliverer to them. And because it doesn't come to them in the way that they expected, they simply, out of whole cloth, disregard the possibility. Just like Herod and our fear about God in our lives, often we too can be apathetic like the priests. What do we want out of a deliverer, out of a Messiah? Good fortune, good jobs, more money in the bank account, good something. 
So often we Christians turn our lives over to God. There's not some instant transformation the way that so many of us think that we should expect. And we sense, therefore, that this Christianity thing just isn't working. Maybe it works for some people, but it just doesn't work for me. And then we end up turning our backs on God. It's not that we hate God. It's that we just don't care. There's one more group I'd like to look at this evening. And that's these magi. Because these wise men give us an example of faith. The priests couldn't have been bothered to walk the five miles to Bethlehem and see for themselves. They weren't willing to sacrifice a couple of hours. Again, the distance from Persia, 12 to 1300 miles. We also suppose this trek took at least a year long. Now, again, I say these things and you... There's a little bit of us that go, oh, yeah, that is a lot. Stop for a second. Put yourself on the carpets inside the tents of these caravans. We are a 1,200-mile trip, and we think, gosh, a long time. But, I mean, really, think about it. Think about after six to eight months of walking, desert traveling, many of you not even sure where you're headed. You're not totally sure that you'll even make it. At what point, honestly, would you begin to question the safety of your trip? To even maybe question your own sanity. Trusting what you've been told about the God of Israel? Not even your God. But trusting that you're on your way to discover the Savior of the world? Our lives can be just like their lives sometimes too. We're told of God. We trust. We walk. We set up camp for the night. We walk. We escape some bandits, some robbers. Maybe not. Maybe we get robbed. Good things happen. but Probably a lot more bad things happen than good things to us on the way. But we continue to trust. We continue to walk. We continue to believe that the creator of the world, our God, acts in our lives and has plans for our salvation. And despite the circumstances of our travel, we continue to walk. And one day, one day, we come upon the house where the star finally rests. And what we encounter overjoys us. We fall on our face and we worship. And we offer as gifts the most valuable things that we have. For many of us, it's our hearts. It's control of our lives. Why? Because we had the faith to trust in God. Because we believe that God's promises are true. And that God has brought a Savior into the world to save it. Any questions? That's why your nativity scene is wrong. So, confronted with the truth about Jesus in the world, 
Which person will we choose to be? Will we act like King Herod? Or will we become apathetic as the priests and the teachers of the law? Or do we have the faith and courage to be like the Magi? Seeking for ourselves, despite the cost, despite the travel, despite the miles, will we continue to walk and trust so that we can encounter God for ourselves? That's the question of Epiphany. That's the question for us as we walk into this new year. Anyway, it's something to think about. Hey, friend, uh, I hope to see you next week. And until then, be blessed.